Hello and welcome to the Fleet Street Letter podcast. My name is Theo Casey. I'm the editor and investment director of the Fleet Street Letter. And in this week's podcast, we're going to be talking about QE. We're going to be talking about tail risk management. And in the educational segment, we're going to be talking about market fragmentation. Okay, so let's get straight into it. Uh, on Wednesday, Ben Bernanke, the uh, chair, the head of the Federal Reserve, announced $600 billion to be spent uh, up until the second quarter 2011. What that means is every month the Federal Reserve will take $75 billion from that $600 billion and buy up uh, uh, government bonds. Now, by transmission, that means that the price of those government bonds will go up, the yields will go down, and the people that were previously invested, because they're going to be buying these bonds on the secondary market, so the people that were holding these bonds will now have money in their hands. And what are they going to do with that money? Well, they'll put some of it back into buying more bonds. But that will only go so far, because as we've already discussed, the price of the bonds will be rising, which means the yields on the bonds will be falling. And if you have falling yields, it's a less attractive investment proposition. So they're going to be putting this money into other markets as well. It's going to find its way into the equity markets. It's going to be finding its way into property markets because the holders of these bonds are pension funds. And pension funds don't just invest in bonds. They've got a, a diverse portfolio of all types of assets. And when the yield on one of those assets that they were holding becomes less attractive, they hold less of those things. So the money will go from the Fed to the pension funds and from the pension funds into these other asset markets. And that's why we are playing um, QE via mining stocks. You know, the obvious thing would be perhaps to invest in bonds. Um, a, we're already invested in bonds. We're playing the momentum on gilts and on treasuries. And we have been doing so for a couple of months. And B, we don't think that's going to be the most leveraged play on um, quantitative easing. We think that mining stocks, we think the money will come out uh, of the bond market and enter the equity market. And the area that it will enter and force higher is uh, mid-cap miners. So go back to the last week's podcast if you want to learn a little bit more about why we think Mid-cap miners are such good QE investments. So we're not going to spend too much longer talking about QE. The, the time to talk about QE was before it happened. We made our preparation. We decided on the investments we wanted to hold. And lo and behold, come Wednesday, uh, Ben Bernanke uh, came good, put $600 billion out there, and now our investments are doing very well. Freeport is up about 8 or so percent from the point at which we recommended it. Sentiment Egypt, not doing quite as well, but it's also up. Uh, our QE plan is in play. Now, what people tend to do, and I don't understand why, is, is tell you what Economist X or Hedge Fund Manager Y has to say about quantitative easing. It's too early to draw any conclusions. So in the written letter and in this podcast, we're not going to spend too much longer talking about it. We made our plan. The plan's going well. Um, all of our investments are doing, doing really well at the moment, um, so we can't complain about the effects of QE thus far. If it turns sour, we have our, our stop losses, and we can also take other action as well. Um, so that's it for QE. Uh, there's, there's nothing more to talk about on that front. It's time to think about the next investment idea, because it's, it's, it's all well and good to just navel gaze and, and talk something to death and analyze what's happening with every currency and discuss the historical precedent for what that means might happen next. But we don't know yet. 
Um, and we have the requisite fail safe in place in, the, in, in, in our stop losses. So let's just stop thinking about it. Let's stop talking about it and thinking about it. The positions are where they ought to be. Uh, and touch wood, they'll continue doing what they're currently doing, which is rising. Um, the next subject I want to think about, and I may come across a little bit bipolar with this, um, is a complete change of tone. QE is doing very good things for our portfolio, but now that good things are happening, let's not forget what happened in 2008 and the beginning of 2009. The markets went haywire. Everything went, went, went sour, and traditional diversification failed us. If you were holding oil, stocks, bonds, uh, uh, whatever you were holding, you lost money. Correlations, uh, cross-asset correlations, all went to one, they all went to 100%, and everything fell together. Now, I don't imagine that it will be a bank failure that brings about the next market crash. This is why they call them black swan events. You don't know what it will be and, until it's happened. Um, but something will bring about another market crash. Remember, it wasn't so long ago that we were discussing that the cult of equity is dead. The last 10 years have been really woeful uh, uh, equity market performances. So. It, it's odds on that we're going to have another crash. Of course, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England and the ECB, what they've done um, and what they're doing with these continual uh, uh, stimuli is they've figured the mood of the market and they know what they have to do to keep markets, you know, the wheels of the market turning. It's like a Pavlovian response. If you ring the bell, the dogs, uh, and, and you give, give the dog the, the, the food, and you ring the bell again, it's mouth waters because it's expecting the food. It's, it's that Pavlovian response. And now the market knows that if it rings its bell, if it gives you X billion dollars, you're going to carry on trading, you're going to carry on buying properties, you're going to carry on lending to small businesses, etc., etc., etc. It's got the measure of the market, and it knows what to do to keep um, the wheels turning. Now, that's why I don't expect a bank failure to be the next thing that, that brings the market to its knees. It'll be something we're not even thinking about, and it'll be something that the market, that, sorry, that the Federal Reserve and the, the, the fiscal authorities, the monetary authorities, haven't figured out how to temper the market when investors throw all their toys out the pram. Um, and as a result, QE might not be enough. Whatever it is, we don't know, and this is all opinion and conjecture, we don't know what it's going to be, but whatever it's going to be, the same thing will happen again. All investments, no matter if you're in stocks or bonds or anything else, will likely fall together because this is, this is what makes a, a market crash. All market participants withdraw. Um, so we have to now, when everything's good, uh, consider how to protect ourselves the next time something does go wrong. And it's exactly these type times that you should be prudent and, and think about how to protect yourself. And that's what tail risk management is all about. A tail risk management product is one that goes up when all markets are going down. And it does this using a variety of sophisticated investments. Uh, you may be familiar with the VIX, the volatility index. That's something that has a good um, uh, negative correlation with the market. And those are the types of things that these tail risk funds invest in. Now, these funds, by nature of the types of things they invest in and because they have like a counter reaction with that of the market, 
will be a drag on the portfolio. Um, it, it, it's something that lots of fund managers are talking about. There's a lot of tire kicking going on in tail risk management now. Everyone understands it's important and everyone knows that we're going to have another market crash, but no one wants to sacrifice uh, their monthly performance because take this example, if you have two equity funds and one of them is invested 100% in the market in the S&P 500, let's say, and the other one is invested 97% in the S&P 500 and it's put 3% of its money in one of these insurance products, one of these tail risk management products, then that one, the one that is taking the prudent steps to protect itself, will underperform the one that isn't managing its risks because when the market's going up, it'll have a 100% participation in that up. But the uh, fund that is being prudent and is managing its tail risk will only have a 97% participation. So the IFAs and, and the people who make these investment recommendations will say, ah, this is the better performing fund. So lots of fund managers are reticent to dive into tail risk management, but you have to do it because all of these gains that we're now seeing with our miners, with a dividend fund, with all of the positions in our portfolio that are doing very well, it will count for nothing when the, mar when the next market crash comes about. And here's something else you have to consider. You can only really put 2 or 3% of your money in a tail risk product. You can't put 50% of your money in a tail risk product because then, you know, most of the time, markets are going up or they are middling. Um, and it's only every so often that there's a massive spike lower or a massive crash. Um, so to put your money in tail risk management the whole time and 50% of your money is going to be a costly uh, uh, activity and it's not going to make you money. So what you have to do is just think about maybe one, two, three percent of your portfolio, put it towards tail risk products. And here's the thing, if 97% of your money is going down in those times, that three percent that's going up has to be asymmetric. It can't be a linear, a symmetrical relationship. If the S&P is going down 10%, this can't go up 10% because you're only putting 3% of your money in it. So that 3%, that money you've got in a tail risk product has to be asymmetric. It has to go up hundreds of percent. It has to go up much, much more than the down draft in equity markets. Otherwise, that 3% will not be sufficient to protect the 97% of your pot. So this is just one of the new topics I want you to have on your radar. We don't have a solution yet. We're looking at Pine River. We're looking at a number of funds that provide tail risk products. And we're thinking about how are we going to integrate this into the portfolio and when should we do it. Um, but this is an important new topic. And this is something that we're going to use to hopefully protect ourselves come the next downturn. We're already doing that with gold. Um, gold is one of those things that... that did very well in the 2008-2009 downturn and it's, it's, it's hitting all-time all new highs now that the Bank, um, Bank of England and the uh, monetary authorities in America are pursuing this further quantitative easing um, and this will be similar to that. It'll be another position in the portfolio that we have to protect ourselves in case things get dangerous again. So that's the QE the tail risk management. Now what I want to talk about is, is just to briefly discuss uh, one of the positions in the portfolio. 
Um, every week we're going to be talking about one of our companies, one of our holdings, and just give you a little bit of an idea of the motivation that we have for investing in that company. This week we're going to talk about the Japanese technology firm Nintendo. Now Nintendo is one of my favorite companies. Um, it's, it's unique. It's unique in that it is innovating one of the fastest growing forms of media in the world. Uh, video games are a, a growing industry. While the music industry is suffering, while the film industry is, is middling, video games are a really fast-growing market. Everyone talks about the movies because it's big picture, it's, it's something we're familiar with. Everyone talks about the success of a film like Avatar. But I bet you didn't know that there was a video game released at the same time as Avatar that made just as much money with a much smaller budget. It was called Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, um, and it was an Activision production. So video games are huge right now. And what Nintendo has done is make them that much bigger. What they, the, the traditional consumer of a video game is a teenage boy. Now, think about the economic restrictions of a market that is dominated by teenage boys. Number one, teenagers are at school and don't work, so they don't have any money. Their money is controlled by their parents, and it is rationed. Um, so when you're aiming an entire industry at someone that doesn't... One, one member of the family, to begin with, and the member of the family that is least able to go out and buy said product, you have a limited, you have a niche, you have a small market there. What Nintendo did is turn that on its head. Let's build video games that the entire family can enjoy. Now, it's not just about enjoyment, it's about economics, because once you make a platform that the entire family can enjoy, it's not restricted the, the purchase of video game software and hardware is not restricted to the very limited amount of cash that that teenage boy has. Your grandmother has money, your father has money, the, the mother in the family has money, and they're all equally motivated to play these video games. So Nintendo has played a blinder in that they have taken the uh, idea of who a video game customer is and turned it on its head, and suddenly the Nintendo Wii is the biggest selling console in the world because everyone can buy it. Everyone is motivated to buy it, and the amounts of money that each member of the household has goes towards buying Nintendo products. So they've done something unique in creating the Nintendo Wii. Nintendo Wii is a motion-controlled uh, uh, console, and it's incredibly well-selling, despite being technologically inferior to the Xbox 360 and the Sony PlayStation 3. They're... they're taking that innovation and they're going the next step now. Their next innovation, because, you know, the Wii is baked into the share price. You're not going to get much mileage out of playing Nintendo, uh, no pun intended, playing Nintendo um, uh, as, as a means of, of, of playing the sales of the Wii, because they've been, they've gone, and they've peaked, and they're now falling. However, Nintendo has done it again. They've come up with a new console that is similarly innovative. We just briefly mentioned Avatar before. One of the big fascinations of Avatar was the fact that it was in 3D. Now, what Nintendo has done is their next iteration of the DS, the sort of Game Boy successor, is called the 3DS. And the reason it's called 3DS is because it allows you to play games in 3D. 
Now here's the thing. It doesn't just allow you to play games in 3D, it allows you to play games in 3D without the use of 3D glasses. Now this is one of the big bugbears of people that in, maybe enjoy 3D films, but it's a pain to wear the glasses for two and a half hours and your eyes start to hurt after a while. Nintendo is doing something completely different and you have to see this uh, uh, a video of the way it works because it's very difficult to put across that it, it, it's the perspective of the um, screen changes as you move the console around and as your eyes move around the screen. It's very clever what they've done. Um, but they are piggybacking on, the, on this growing trend of 3D. Films that are in 3D sell better than do those that are not in 3D. And we believe the same might be true of games. It's going to have um, a, a topicality to it. It's going to be um, uh, uh, in vogue because 3D is a big thing. But it's also technologically a very powerful machine. This is not a, 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 uh, a, a backward device. It, it's, it's not just the DS with 3D capabilities. The graphical capabilities of this are on par with the Nintendo Wii in a handheld. So it's, it's a big step forward for Nintendo, and we believe that when the console is released next year, sales are going to go very well. There, there, is, there is a pessimistic expectation for how well this console is going to sell, because it's a difficult concept to sell. But remember, the Wii was a difficult concept to sell. It's difficult to explain something that they've never seen before. If you innovate, it's difficult to sell that innovation because there's nothing to compare it to. However, there were no problems with putting the idea across to um, end users, and, and the sales of the Wii are a testament to that. So we, I believe that they will do this again. There's another good uh, potential catalyst to upward share movement in Nintendo. Nintendo's shares trade in big blocks. You can't buy one share of Nintendo. You have to buy a hundred. So that's a 25 grand outlay right there. So the uh, retail investor has no capacity to invest in Nintendo. They have to do it through ADRs, which is what we do. We buy American depository receipts that trade in America. We can't buy the Japanese company because if we tried to buy the Japanese share, we'd have to buy at least a hundred, at least 25 grand's worth. Now, there is no real reason for Nintendo to maintain this block um, trading agreement that they have. They can pull that away whenever they want to. And the CEO has actually openly discussed that one day they might take away that re requirement for the shares to trade in big blocks of 100. And if that happens, there'll be a catalyst because private investors who may uh, admire Nintendo and think Nintendo's a great company but don't have the wealth to invest in it will suddenly flock to this share. And we saw exactly this thing happen to Berkshire Hathaway, the company that we invested in at the beginning of the year, the American uh, Warren Buffett's uh, uh, holding company. When they split their stock, investors poured in and there was a massive upwards, upward catalyst. So these are two things we're looking for from Nintendo. So just briefly, I'm now going to discuss um, uh, this week's educational theme, which is fragmentation in the stock market. I recently wrote about stock market fragmentation and I thought it'd be useful for me to discuss what it is and why it's important. Once upon a time, all of the shares for, say Vodafone, 
Vodafone shares would trade through the London Stock Exchange, and that would be that. There was one venue. It was a lit venue. That, as I'll come to in a moment, there are lit and dark venues. Um, and uh, uh, it was very transparent. These days, there are over 40 trading venues for Vodafone as a share. You can buy and sell Vodafone shares at the London Stock Exchange, at BATS, at Turquoise. There's all different types of uh, uh, venues, and I'm going to explain the differences between them and why this is important. If you have a lit venue, it's one where you can see who you're trading with, you can see how many uh, shares are changing hands, and that's something that an outsider can, can understand. A dark venue is just the opposite. If, say, a, a Goldman Sachs wants to offload some of its Vodafone shares, but it doesn't want everyone to know about it, because if Goldman Sachs sells all of its shares, that sends a message to the market. That says something, and it's going to affect the price. And if they start to affect the price as they offload their shares, they're going to be selling them for lower and lower and lower and lower prices, and they're going to take less and less and less profit as the, as the transaction goes through. So the solution to that is to trade in the dark. No one knows Goldman Sachs is selling 5 million shares because it's doing it through a dark venue. Uh, so that's the idea there. But there is huge competition in the, uh, in the market, and this creates fragmentation. There are so many lit venues, there are so many dark venues, that uh, shares are trading everywhere. And here's the thing. When there was just one venue, if you saw a quote for Vodafone and it said £1.40, that was the price you were going to get. These days, if you see a Vodafone quote at £1.40, but that £1.40 is, is, uh, 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 is trading in so many different places, you might find it's actually one thirty-five at one venue and one forty-five at another venue. So you have a problem in that you might not get the best available price because your broker, and this is why this is consequential for you, if your broker is not a member of every trading venue, or at least a, a, a healthy number of them, your broker will not necessarily be able to give you the best price in the market. You may see on Bloomberg that Vodafone's trading at £1.40. You're not going to get in at £1.40. You're going to get in at £1.41 because they don't have the requisite subscriptions to the right trading venues to allow you to get that best price. So what I recommend you do is you speak to your broker, you ask them what trading venues they are subscriber to, and make your decision as to whether you are with the right broker. Give your broker a hard time because they take trading commissions from you. And if they're being tight-fisted by not paying the amount of money required to subscribe to all of the necessary trading venues, then you're not going to be getting the best prices. So shop around. Find out which brokers have access to which trading venues. And as a general rule of thumb, the bigger the broker, the more venues they're going to be a subscriber to. And that rounds up this week's podcast. I've tried to trim it a little bit shorter this week. Tell me what you think. Um, next week, we will be looking a little bit more at tail risk management. We'll be finding another one of our companies to explain the narrative of. And in our educational segment, we're going to be talking about the use of hedging in the portfolio. Thanks very much. Goodbye.